0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is David Lindsay Wright. David is co founder of Text. Tube Futures Studio and is an applied futurist and foresight practitioner with high qualifications in Japan Studies, Business Communications, Media Production and Future Studies. He is a former professor at the Future University Hakodate Department of Media Architecture and Sapporo City University Department of Media Design. David crosses over between Futures media arts and the sciences and the corporate entrepreneurial worlds. He has spent two decades in Japan, is fluent in that language and has extensive networks within the advanced technology communities. Welcome to FuturePod, David.
1: Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you, David. So question one for the guest is to tell their story. So what is the David Lindsay Wright story? Well,
1: it's quite a long story, and I suppose I would start at my first memories. My first memory goes back to, um, well, I, I was actually conceived in Canada a long time ago. Then we moved to America, and my first memories of life were in America and then we moved to uh, New Zealand, and uh, then we moved to India. So, look, I've I've spent quite a bit of my life just moving around from country to country, and uh, as you mentioned just now, I also had 20 years in Japan, so that was most of my adult life was in Japan. But having said that, there are a few kind of milestone events which kind of prompted me to sort of get into the strange world of future studies one of them was, this goes back to um, probably, I think this was in New Zealand, about 1970-ish. And my dad was a research scientist. And I remember sitting at an electron microscope, which was a very high-tech piece of um, technology back in those days. Yep. I remember sitting there and um, looking at all these strange worlds of organisms and um, thinking, this is, this is the kind of thing that I'd like to be doing in the future. And as it turned out, I didn't become a scientist So a little bit further on down the line, we lived in India and coming back from India in 1972, 73, I saw my first ever movie at the theatre and that was called 2001 Space Odyssey, Uh which is, as as I'm sure you know, is um, Arthur C. Clarke's screenplay. And being the first movie I saw, it was a a legendary classic science fiction movie and that sort of pricked me once again with my interest in, in, in the future. Going on from that, another milestone was when I was at high school. I actually got a prize for um, social sciences, and I got a book voucher, and this is a very strange thing for a – I was a 13-year-old boy, and I was into, you know, the usual boy thing, sports and, and whatever, as one does. And um, anyway, I went to the bookstore, and I ended up buying a book, which I have right in front of me now. I've kept it all this time. It's called The Ascent of Man.
0: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: yeah, now that that may ring a bell. That's a pretty cool book for a
0: thirteen-year-old. Well, I
1: was thinking, I just thought about this the other day. That's what a strange thing to do. I compare it my my own boy is thirteen years old, and if I showed him this book, he'd think I was absolutely mad, which I probably was absolutely mad. <laughs> anyway, so I bought the ascent of man, and I've I've carried it with me for forty-eight years now, and um. Just recently, I came back and revisited that book, and I actually had the DVD series. So I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later on. But it is part of the story, which is is unfolding um, in real time. Um, Fast forward a little bit, another year, I was in an art class, and I did this picture, black and white. It was a bit like an M.C. Escher kind of a tessellation, and it was... I called it Future City. So, again, I was 13, 14 years old, and I did this picture. And, again, I still have this picture with me. I, I sometimes use it on my PowerPoints as the front cover. And, again, I must have been a very strange 13, very dark 13-year-old boy. So there's a whole bunch of things that happened when I was, like, 12, 13, 14. Um, and then fast forward to my last year of high school, and this is this is a, a, a turning point, I suppose. Again, it might have been in the history class, and we had to read a book by, you know, this book. You're going to laugh at this one. It was Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, yeah. and I was, what, 17 at the time, I think, and I remember reading that oh, Toffler said that if you want to know where the future is going, don't go to America, don't bother about Europe, you have to go to Japan. And I thought, mm.
2: Japan, oh, okay,
1: all right. Anyway, fast forward another year, my best friend um, at university actually got a scholarship to go to Japan, and he said, this is great, you've got to come here. So I applied for a scholarship, I got my scholarship, and ended up in Japan. Um, and this this all goes back to Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. And um, from there, I learned Japanese language, worked in a number of different kind of organizations and exporting cars. I worked in pharmaceuticals um, for a while, so I had this kind of diverse background But always on the back of my mind was this idea about the future and and where is that all going. So I kind of developed an interest in various things around the future. I was reading Bertrand Russell at the time, um, Does Man Have a Future, The Conquest of Happiness, and so on. And then one day when I was about 22, I saw another movie, and this this again changed my life. And that movie was Blade Runner. Wow. Yeah, and I was absolutely just amazed by the beauty, uh, but also about the possibility of, of sentient knowledge and uh, yeah. artificial intelligence, robotics, and the themes of, of, of love, science, technology, and so on.
0: The beauty in the darkness.
1: It, indeed, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a Joseph um, Conrad uh, novel. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I took I took Blade Runner with me, and um, I thought, well, this, this could be a really interesting niche, is telling stories about future possibilities. Back in those days, and probably still the case, most stories about the future tend to be dystopian rather than utopian. Mm. So I took these. I was in Japan for a number of years. I developed my own kind of futures club while living in Tokyo. And then I found one day, I can't remember how this happened, but I found that you could actually study futures at university. And I thought... Wow, it's not just a hobby. You can actually do something with with this. So, with my old Macintosh computer, um, I sent off an email to Jim Dater in
2: um, Hawaii.
1: Yeah, exactly. He kind of laughed at me and said, Look, we'd love you to come, but Hawaii is a very expensive place. I would recommend that you go to Brisbane in Australia and um, talk to a guy called Sohail Inayatullah and Tony Stevenson. So, I thought, oh, that's funny because my brother lives in Brisbane and I sort of go there once every year anyway. So, Okay, I'll drop in and see those guys. Long story short, um, I eventually went back and did a master's degree with Sahel and and Tony and got my master's degree. And from that, I managed to get a scholarship to do a PhD. And towards the very end of my PhD, which was with um, Professor Greg Hearn and and Sahel, and Tony was kind of in the background too, Mm. uh, at QUT, I actually got an, an offer to be an associate professor in Japan at a university literally called the Future University. And I wasn't too keen about going back to Japan at that time because I'd already been there, what, 12, 13 years. And I thought, well, I've kind of done that. So I was a little bit selfish and just said, look, I'll come if you can give me the following conditions. Give me a carte blanche to basically, you know, design my own futures curricula. If I can have my own kind of media studio so we can make stories about the future. And incredibly, they came back and said yes to all that. So I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you else. The <laughs> And I thought, oh, well, I've got to go now. So so I ended, ended up going back to Japan in about 2004 as an associate professor to the Future University, which was kind of a tech university. There were four main pillars. One was robotics, there was artificial intelligence, there was emerging media, complex systems, and so on. Um, so I was working across all those fields, and I was the only person doing anything about the future. And I developed my own studio, which at that time we called Test Tube Studios. Oh. Um, which has now become text tube for reasons which I'll come back to later on. So we had test tube studios and we had like thirty forty students working for me at one at one time, and we were making just churning out all these short films about the future. At the end of the year we, we would go downtown to this quirky city of three hundred thousand people called Hakodate, and uh, we would have like a little film festival. We would borrow the, um, I think it was called the the City Making Centre and we would get all the students to come down, show their best films and have a little prize at the end and so on. So this kind of developed into one of my new flagship projects called F3, um, Futures Film Festival. So towards the end of 2011-12, I felt that my time in Japan was running out. Um, I was getting frustrated by the fact that um, salaries were coming down in Japan. The workload was going up. And the students were becoming more and more difficult to actually uh, work with. And I thought, well, I've got to do something else. So I came back to Australia and I worked at QUT, Queensland University of Technology, for a little bit on a couple of futures projects. Um, Moved over to UQ and that's where we made a pilot for a television show, which we called um, Textube Future TV. So that was a 22-minute a pilot, and it was a pretty cool pilot. It was was designed to sort of go beyond, beyond 2000, which you probably remember too, which was – that was also a great show. I used to I used to love watching that when I was growing up. So we thought, if you took the idea of future and made a TV show and you made it for other futurists, what kind of a TV show would this be? So that was the whole brief, the concept design around um, future, future – text future, future TV. So we made that pilot, what happened about two or three years ago? One of my colleagues from from University of Queensland took that to the ABC and gave a presentation on my behalf because they were looking for new TV shows. Apparently, so he gave the presentation, and they came back and said, "Yeah, you know, there's not really much interest for the ABC about future topics anymore." So it would make a great podcast, and here we are. Wow. <laughs> You've got the podcast, Peter. It's kind of weird, isn't it? So, um, that's, wow. Yeah, that's that bizarre. But the, the story doesn't end there. Okay, so my TV program was designed in three or four different segments. Anyway, fast forward six months, I turn on the TV one day, about three or four months ago, and I find a television show produced by the ABC, which is exactly one of my segments. Wow. There you go. So they basically they took my idea.
0: <laughs>
1: After having said they didn't like the idea, there's no interest in the future. And I thought,
0: what? Yeah.
1: So that's a that's a bit of a, a bit of a, a beacon there for one. The the, the the idea of future or futures means to people in Australia and, and the media in general i suppose so uh, um so where I am now take all that that's like 20 years of experience right now i am basically beyond academia i I now believe that academia is not really the place to be doing future studies i think it's i think it's inherently the wrong place to be doing it so I kind of forced myself out about three years ago from UQ and put myself in a position where I've got to find new applications, which have some kind of real world effects. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. So I've spent the last three years kind of prospecting. And when I when I say prospecting, I, I mean that in the sense of, of gold prospecting or Opal Hunters, which are, which are TV shows that I actually do watch. <laughs> yeah, they're interesting shows. Um But I actually go out there prospecting, looking at different ways to actually apply. That's why I refer to myself as as an applied futurist as I try to find new applications, literally, for actually creating real-world change and transformation um, using the incredible body of of theoretical and, and practical methodological knowledge in future studies, which I think is absolutely wasted in universities. Mm. Sorry to say that to all my academic colleagues. They're probably nodding thick and year. We kind of agree, but well, we're comfortable right now. so. Um.
0: Thanks, David. I'm going to ask you to just maybe briefly just dig into that because, I'm again, I'm an old academic who taught at universities and taught futures, and I would probably agree with you too, but you know, do you want to explain that a bit, Morris?
1: I find that students turned off because students these days are very much oriented towards getting a job. It's just that simple, much more so than they were 20, 30 years ago when I first went to university myself, where it was all about knowledge and then using that knowledge to do something else in the world. Right now, the first question they ask, does it get me a job and how much money does it give me?
2: Hmm.
1: So with futures, unfortunately, basically, we have to admit there are really no jobs or almost no jobs, and therefore, students, although they love the idea of studying the future, they find the word cool and sexy, they turn off because they don't really think that it actually will lead to anything tangible for them in the real world. Mm. And that's often the case. So, in my classes, I had to sort of try and you know influence them that okay, maybe you won't get a job as a futurist, you don't need to have a job as a futurist. But what you can do is apply your understanding of the dynamics, the way the future unfolds, who causes it to unfold. You can apply that to your job as a banker, or as a high school teacher, or as a sports person, or whatever. Um, so it had minimal effect in that sense. But I, I don't really think that futures belongs in university. I think I think that project building. Is really the way to go right now, and I think that academics themselves have actually lost a lot of credibility, especially in Australia. Uh, and I say that having worked across three universities in Australia, I don't want to say too much, but I think I think the universities now have kind of lost their sense of of, of um, purpose and their sense of meaning, their mission in in life, and. I had some some quite dreadful experiences at, at both QUT and UQ when it came to overseas students as well, and I realised it was just all about the money, and they just wanted to churn the students out as quickly as they possibly could, and any discussion of of the ethics or, or the value of what you're doing was was squashed immediately, and this that's a university that prides itself as being you know one of the best universities in Australia and, and indeed the world, so I realised that. Yeah, to do something really effective with with futures, and futures is is, is also a very value values laden kind of a field. That to be true to the field, I think it belongs outside the university and people building projects, and and that's why I like what you're doing, Peter. To be honest, I'm not trying to promote your show, but you're you're doing something which um you know probably doesn't you know turn over a really big profit, but it probably has a pretty interesting kind of um effect on the real world in that you're actually getting people who do futures to talk about what they do and inspire other people. And I think that that's something that you actually cannot do in a university these days. Curriculum are so locked down. um, Very smart people are locked into um, their computer systems and and basically fighting with the computers all day long. Um, And that's just happened in the last 10 years. It's absolutely shocking now. And they're getting very frustrated. And I think that the best people now are looking at university, bad conditions, poor respect pay is not getting any better, uh, living 12-month uh, contract to contract and thinking, no, nope, I think I'd rather work in a bank or something. I think that's awesome.
0: Yeah. Thanks, David. Second question, David, the one I encourage the guest to talk to the listeners about – a method or a framework that is central to their practice and to talk to the audience about both the method but how others could maybe pick the method up or use the method. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: Yeah, look, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. I I have three ideas. I, I may not get through all three, but my first one is this. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I actually use this every time I start a new futures project, I, I put on my glasses, which give me this framework or methodology, which comes from and Ayatollah who was my um, master's and PhD supervisor. You see, I, I see that the future is being a bit like, well, empirically, the, the, the argument at academia and universities is that the future doesn't exist. How can you study it? It's a kind of a stupid argument, um, but it's just a way of keeping futures outside of the university system.
2: Mm.
1: So I I see the future as being a bit like wanting to go on a holiday to a place that has never been mapped before. So I think the first thing that you need to do with any new futures issue is literally to try and map it out as much as you can. So I start with um, futures Triangle Analysis.
0: Yeah, great tool.
1: Yeah, the pushes and, and the weights. And I've been using that for like seven or eight years. Actually, no longer. I use it in my PhD as well, too. So I've been using that pretty much every project. I start with that. I literally map out the terrain. I occasionally create like a big, giant mural. On a wall, because I'm a very visual person, I, I literally draw pictures and little diagrams. I stick photographs onto it. And over time, I build this very big, deep map. Which literally maps out some kind of futures issue, looking at the, um, the pushes, pulls and, and the weights. And I've developed it a little bit too because I think that originally that Sahel designed the weights to be those things that resist change. Now some things resist change for a reason, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So you can actually start to map out the, the pulls, the pushes and the weights and yet they go deeper and deeper. So that they become a bit like fractals. Where with a fractal, um, from 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 complex systems, you can actually sort of go deeper and deeper. And the deeper you go, when you find recurring patterns. So because I have a bit of a background in complex systems and fractals and chaos theory and all that stuff, I I tend to look at the um, the futures map as being a bit like that, which is a bit like a physical map. I mean, if you if you map out an island which Mm. no one has ever been to before, the more you zoom in, you know, how how to what degree of detail do you want to go into? So, again, it can go in further and further and further. So, without going into too much detail, um, I, I think that if I was an aspiring futurist, the first um, really, mm. really useful tool is Sahel's futures Trailer.
0: I mean, I would say it's not surprising because, to me, when I used the tool and showed people the tool, they're really creating a narrative of what they're about to do. Exactly. And they're telling their story in terms of, the, to me, the vital energies –
1: well, it's it's funny that you mention the word story because I, I use the word story world, um, which is a which is a word that's often used in 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 the um, the field of transmedia. Where take something like Star Wars, for example. Now, with Star Wars, you've got this big, massive story world, and all the stories Star Wars, one, two, three, four, five, and all the games associated and that are built and designed around Star Wars—they're all built on a single story world. So. Mm-hmm. This triangle analysis is a bit like you've said there. It's kind of you're building a story world onto which you can, can, you know, you can keep populating new things as they come to hand. But you can actually start to create your own stories on top of it, and I think that's the beauty of it—that um, you're designing like a, a completely new sort of story world of, of potential mythologies based on what's already there. So that's that's where I start. Going from there, I would actually my favourite one is something that I've been developing the last what ten or twelve years based on. What I had my students in Japan do, and that was to apply a number of generic futures tools like, um, for example, the FTA, but also scenarios and uh, causal layer analysis and so on. I would actually get them to study some kind of a futures issue, and then I would actually get them to apply a very old tool, but still a very solid tool. And it goes back to H.D. Laswell, who I think was an American psychologist So this goes back to 1948, and uh, Laswell developed something called the Communication Formula, which looks at who says what to whom, in which channels, creating what effects, and so on. So it's a five-part tool. So I've used that, and I've developed that to give it more a kind of a futures orientation. For example, in part three of that, the says what refers to the message. So the measures in this case is, okay, who's saying what about the future? What is what is their message vis-a-vis the future or futures that they are trying to talk about? So this is a tool that can, again, it's a bit like the fractal theory, can go deeper and deeper. But take something like the who. Now, when I ask my students, okay, who is the maker of this particular film, let's take a film like, you know, The Matrix. Actually, The Matrix is a really good example because the, the directors of that have that, have actually changed their identity. So the idea of the who, um, I don't know whether you, you know this, but um, – the Wachos- they were the Wachos- Wachowski brothers at one stage. In the last, what, 10 years, they've both become the Wachowski sisters. Yes. They've literally had gender reassignments. So the who of 10 years ago is not the who they are right now. <laughs> so when you're looking at the who, and you, you put that to my, Jap- my mainly my Japanese students, but also my Australian students, they would always take the who for granted. Yeah, you, know, you know, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, you know, what do you mean? Who is it? Well, okay, who is Steven Spielberg? Who are the Wachowski's? And you need to dig deep into where they come from, what are their motivations, what are their values, and what kind of a position do they have vis-a-vis their topic of dinosaurs or, or whatever. And that's something that most people really never think about. So just that one very simple question of who are these people? But also, when you're taking something like a movie, there are many who's and they've all got their own hats on, and those hats are probably can you know shifting all, all the time. So. When you've got a movie, there's no one person that directs the movie. Now, you might have a director, you might have two directors, but you've got the producer, who's the money person. Then you've got the studios, who actually make the whole thing happen. So you've got all these complex arrangements of different kinds of who's, and the final film that you see at the cinema is actually kind of something that sits in between all those various who's, the directors, the producers, the actors, the writers, the studios, and, and so on, and... Therefore, you get like a phenomena whereby with um, the the movie Blade Runner that I mentioned before by uh, Ridley Scott, Um, I remember I bought the um, complete version of Blade Runner a few years back. It was a DVD with like five or six different versions of the same film. Yes. Um, Because there's no one single definitive version. um, They've all got their own sort of takes on what Blade Runner is, what it should be. And as the viewer of Blade Runner, then you actually come out with a different kind of a message.
0: Isn't it interesting that we've actually seen the sort of notion of, yeah, you know, the notion of the director's cut, the notion that somehow there is a true version of a film that's a more authentic version of the film?
1: It is interesting, but it's something that unless you actually put that to people in some kind of like a structured situation, such as a classroom or, or a lecture or, or whatever... It's something that people actually don't really think of. But when they do start to think of it, they think, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, so who are these people? Where do they come from? Politically, are they left-wing? Are they right-wing? Are they Trump supporters? Are they Biden supporters or whatever? And then it just sort of adds to the richness of the viewer experience. It, it also, that, that model that I, I tend to call that model, the Futures Oriented Communications Analysis Model, which is not a very um, pretty acronym. It sounds like fuckum. So, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't use that too lightly. So. <laughs> it literally is F O C A M, the Futures Oriented Communications Analysis Model. Yeah, it's memorable. But it's also good for, for actually analyzing communications messages from anything from a t shirt or a TV commercial or a film, a book, mm. a political campaign, any kind of communicative message, which is basically everything. Everything has communication to mm. Um, but it's also good when you sit down to actually write your own message, to design your own message. If you start with something like this
2: mm.
1: uh, futures-oriented communications analysis model and think about, okay, who, who am I to sit down and write this about climate change or um, the future of ageing or, or whatever, and then you need to think, okay, how do I pin myself down? I've got five hats mm. when it comes to this particular topic. How do I reconcile and put all those five different hats together into a message which is coherent enough? that people can look at it, read it, observe it, and, and actually act on it without getting completely confused. And, and this is a real important thing because mm. I see that so much about the future. It's, 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 it's numbing to normal people. Futurists kind of take it for granted um, because, you know, we, we tend to understand the language, but it's, it's like science communication or mathematics communication. If you put those mathematical concepts to people who aren't mathematicians, you know, they just go numb. Um, and it's the same with the future stuff too so we've got to create messages with a communicate a communicative richness which doesn't numb people but which can actually inspire them facilitate them to actually do something about it at the end of the day rather than just becoming paralyzed so that's that's a challenge with designing a, a really good futures oriented communication communication message i do tend to use quite a bit of foucault post structural stuff and i get the criticism that that's very pretentious mm. I actually, I actually think that Foucault, Michel Foucault, the, he's he's a political historian, analyzer of of um, historical paradigms, you might say. I actually think that a lot of his work is, is extremely practical. And if you take something like governmentality, and if you look at that and apply that to the situation situation in a place like Australia or Japan or other countries, it makes those contexts much more sensible and more more readily understandable than they would normally be. So my third framework would actually be a Michel Foucault kind of um, post-structural analysis, Mm. Um, using things like governmentality, biopower, the idea of dividing practices and so on, which um, is probably a bit too much for a um, a podcast, Peter. What do you think?
0: (laughs) I mean, the thing about Foucault, I I think his work on insanity was brilliant, is that I think people almost want to push these useful ideas away by kind of painting them as... As be, as being purely purely intellectual games.
1: Well, they look like that, but I, I, like I said, I found them ex- extremely useful and and practical when applied to real world situations. Take something like you know the panopticon, which I think came from Jeremy Bentham. Um, The panopticon theory is is really useful now, especially in this this, this age of artificial intelligence, surveillance, and all the different sort of variations of surveillance like surveillance and ubervalence and and so on, where basically it's, it's almost impossible to hide from anything or hide anything. So if you take that one very simple concept and read about panopticism and where that came from, what it implies and so on, it actually brings a, a greater depth to to that un, understanding of of our surveillance society. So again, I think that's probably a bit too much for this this podcast.
0: No, no. I mean, it, I mean, I think it's cool when we when we reach back to ideas that might have been seen to be past and bring them back into the moment. We had a I had a guest uh, who's passionate about Bosatra existentialism, okay. and yeah. and uses existentialism as his central practice now. And it was lovely when um, when he talked about that and and you know, talked about how he uses Sartre's work in doing the work he does. So again, I think you know, we have that opportunity to to reach back to to prior models, prior frameworks, and you know to some extent bring them back into the light and say, hey, these things are useful.
1: Oh, no, I do do agree entirely, and that's why I keep referring back to the the people and the the works that inspired me when I was sort of in my my teens, and including Toffler. um, I know that that a lot of people would poo Toffler, but I think that his future shock, even now, 50-something years later, is actually a pretty interesting read. Uh, And things can be an interesting read, often not because they're good, but also because they're bad, because they were way out. And I, I think that we can learn more from something which is kind of off the mark. And I think that that's something that people tend to forget now, especially in the social media age, when a lot of people want, you know, they want ready answers. I I found that with some of my corporate futures work that you go into into a corporate situation and they're very impatient. They don't want to do any work. They don't want to have any questions. So they're wanting an answer to a futures problem without having a question first. And I think this comes back to the problem that we just want—you know—it's—we it's, want—we want it right now. We want the answer. We haven't got a question, but we want to know what it is. And it doesn't kind of make any sense. So the idea of going back to um, Sartre's ex- existentialism, um, Foucault, and, and going back—you know—even further to—you um, know—to Heidegger and, uh, and, and and so on—I think is—I mm. think is incredibly important. And we, we shouldn't—we shouldn't lose sight of any of that.
0: No, thanks, David. Okay. Third question: What are the futures that you see emerging around you that get your attention that you are that you are seeing that you're paying attention to that you are attracted to, possibly even repelled by? But
1: my interpret- interpretation of this question was that we were looking at the emerging futures of of the field future study,
0: mm.
1: which now that I look at my notes here, I realise that it, it, it kind of corresponds and overlaps with many of the bigger themes about what's happening in the future. Anyway, so, so for the first part of that question, part A is about the, the futures of, of future studies itself is uh, I'm not particularly um, positive about that, unfortunately. I, I feel that future studies is actually dying a stillbirth, which is, which is really sad because I see it as being one of the most important things that we should be studying right now. And when I approach people and they ask me, you know, what do you do? And I say, you know, and I do something called future studies. There's immediate tension. They're really interested. They have no idea what that really means. But there is immediate interest. And then the next question is, well, where can I study something like that? And the the answer is, well, you in Australia, you can't really study that at all unless you study within another field, social sciences or business or whatever. So in a place like Australia, and Japan too, Japan, I I refer back to those two countries because I know them the best is that I see a lot of futurists running around trying to be respected, acknowledged, but at the same time fighting for an ever-shrinking pie because there's not really much futures work out there unless you actually go out and create it yourself. So I found that futurists, unfortunately, where they should be highly collaborative, have actually gone in the opposite direction. Um, and this is counterintuitive because while they should be collaborating, they're actually tend to go in the other direction and basically, um, going inwards and, and not working with other people and therefore not speaking to the kinds of people that they should be. Um, and there's another reason for that too. And I call this, I'm going to sound like Donald Trump. I know, but yes. fake futurists, yes.
2: um,
1: I, I watch a lot of news. I always have the TV and sometimes two or three TVs aren't on the background. Cause I, I scan the world. I'm always doing an environmental scan, which is another useful framework for um, doing futures uh, research. Um, with my environmental scan, um, there are a lot of people who end up on TV calling themselves futurists. They, they tend to not really be futurists at all. And I think that there is a desire out there to have a evangelical kind of a futurist who basically will be telling them things like artificial intelligences, is going to make more money than than anything else. So robots will allow us to make more money than ever before. We won't have to work anymore. I I don't think there's much of an appetite in Australia and other emerging, well, the other developing countries, developed countries, I I should say, for actually doing serious futures work. Again, it comes back to this theme that there's no time. We want the answer. So with with these fake futures, really aren't futurists at all, that seems to be the kind of futurists who actually are actually getting all the gigs and all the work, whereas all the people who have PhDs and who have done like 20, 30 years of research understand um, the knowledge base of future studies are the kinds who basically are not getting any work. So I, I see that um, the field, our field of future studies in Australia and Japan um, is probably not going to be facing a very good future in its, in its own right, which is really a bit of a tragedy. That, that can be mitigated. But I think, I think a number of things need to happen to actually turn that around. And this is where it comes back to my idea of moving out of academic futures into more practical, social, trans- transformative futures mm-hmm. by doing projects. And I think futures projects need to be seen to be doing something in the real world. And one idea that I've had – is to actually start my own political party, a futures-oriented political party, which would be called FOP, F-O-P-P.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I see, I see something like a futures-oriented political party is something that could actually start to use very, very smart um, futures-oriented theories, methodologies, concepts and tools to actually redesign politics in, in quite a unique way. Now, they may never get into, um, into power
0: They probably never want to get into power, probably, either.
1: They may not want to get into power, indeed. Like, Einstein never wanted to be the the Prime Minister of of Israel. Um, So another thing I think that futurists need to be doing to turn around the the whole field is, again, comes back to the idea of communication. Uh, And again, this is where I think that what you're doing with the podcast is really good. Uh, uh, But I think there needs to be more communicative richness with what uh, futurists do. They need to be getting out there. I think they need to speak out against these fake futurists too, because they're kind of taking the limelight a little bit. And I don't want to sound like it's, uh, like I, I, um, I begrudge them their, their limelight. But at the same time, when there are people out there who are doing really good futures work, who aren't getting heard because the fake futurist is shouting louder than they do. And that's, that's often literally the case. Um, I think that futures are, are little, futures are a little bit too nice, a little bit too polite. Maybe that means this is an idea that came from a colleague at QUT a few years back. And he said, Look, Dave, this guy's a professor. He's been in universities for 30 years. And he said, I don't think the QUT or any other university in Australia is ever going to uptake future studies. What that means is that futurists, if you want to have any real world outcomes and actually change the world as, as you purport that you want to do, what you need to do is actually start your own schools. Mm. And he suggested doing something like an RTO, a registered training organization, where you actually start your own future school and you basically bypass um, the, the formal education system and start your own thing. So again, that's the kind of thing that I don't know when, whether anyone in Australia has actually done anything like that. I, I've never heard of anything like that, but I'm thinking that's a pretty good idea as well, too, that we need to step outside of the mainstream and actually start to do quite alternative futures, but make them actually tangible in the real world. And basically, try to change the real world um, from from the outside, from the peripheries. So that's kind of what I'm talking around around that field.
0: Thanks, David. Fourth question, and obviously I. Topical one for you—the communication question. You've already covered. You've already covered this pretty well, but I'm going to ask you the same question. It's, how do you describe to people what you do when they don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Okay,
1: necessarily, 100 uh, percent of people do not understand. 100. That's not necessarily. I'm sorry to disagree with that one. There, and no one. Uh, I have never had one conversation with anyone in the last 20 years who understands it. So it always involves a certain amount of um, explanation. So I usually go with the elevator pitch like 20 to 30 seconds because their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. So usually I tend to say something, I work in a field called future studies, which is anything from science fiction through to corporate scenario planning, uh, looking at, for example, Malaysia 2050 or around 2080 or something like that. They kind of tend to get that. Once you've got their interests, then they kind of think, okay, science fiction, yeah, Star Wars, Matrix, yeah, Blade Runner, we get, get that, and corporate scenario planning, most people have some sense of what that means, um, and then there's everything in between. So that's, that's kind of my 20-second elevator pitch, and if there's any interest from that, then I might start to go and sort of flesh it out with a bit more detail, which, which doesn't ha- happen very often, to be honest. Uh, most people think, oh, yeah, that's cool. Okay. And then they move on and then they get back to, um, hmm. you know, their more practical things. But having said that, again, I, I apply that communications framework, FOCAM, Focum, um, based on the other person, because I, can, I, can, I have a sense of whether they're really seriously interested in what future studies is, or whether it's just you know, saying, you know, a pleasant hello or, or whatever. So depending on how serious they are, I, I tend to flesh out some of those details and just, you know, flesh out what, what is meant by scenarios, what, what contemporary futurists are doing right now, and then just sort of leave it at that. But, but my experience with people in, in corporate um, situations is, again, that they want to have an answer before there's a question. And that's something that academics um, probably you know, are, are not very good at because we always start with a research question or a focus question and take it from there.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and getting, those, getting those questions right, um, as, as we know, is, is a lot of work. It's, it's really hard to actually formulate the right question. And most people, because they haven't done sort of higher education, actually don't really know what it means to formulate the right question.
0: Do you think the pandemic is going to change the way that people – say so you have to have an you know, there has to be an obvious answer out there. Do you think that the pandemic is going to change people to understand that there maybe there are things we actually don't have answers for?
1: I think the people, organizations and cultures have short memories. I think right now, because we're still sort of towards the the end of, of the pandemic that there has been a heightened awareness of that today's reality, may not be the same tomorrow that reality doesn't tend to be completely continuous or not as continu- continuous as we thought it once was which is a the theme of philip k dick all his books were basically about reality is can change just in, in the blink of an eye mm. jg ballard is another science fiction author who whose whole body of work was really based around that idea and that was based upon his childhood growing up in, in china where one day he was the um, son of a very wealthy family with with servants, and then the next day that all changed and he was out on the streets. So his whole career in science fiction was built around the idea that reality um, can change very quickly. So I think it has, the pandemic has heightened our awareness that, oh, wow, yesterday was one thing and today's another thing. What's going to happen tomorrow? So I think that people are kind of questioning the future in that sense. But unfortunately, I don't think that that is going to last very long. and I think that once the pandemic is kind of over, people are going to be very keen to get back to work, back to their workplaces physically. I don't think anybody really wants to work from home. I, I certainly don't and I know that in many other countries people don't have homes big enough to actually allow people to work from home and I I refer to Japan where the Japanese actually just loathe the idea of having to work from home because it's it's almost impossible you you can't do it there's just not enough space so coming back to the question uh, I think I think that um yeah I think that people have short memories and and I think that once people go back to work that the interest in the future is going to subside very quickly I wish I was wrong I hope I'm but that's that's what i'm thinking that's you know i spent a lot of time out there peter just talking to you know very ordinary people i don't really talk to academics very much anymore i talk to you know the the guy who's fixing the pill and um the guy who's going to put up the curtains next week and stuff like that so i talk about many of these things and uh this this is the kind of sense that i get and they 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 come up with the same thing we just want to forget this i want to get back to our lives as quickly as possible and the future will take care of itself
0: thanks david We're at the last question. I wondered if you would mind talking to the listeners about some of the projects you've been doing at Text Tube Futures.
1: Um, sure. Yeah, look, I'd I'd, uh, I'd like that opportunity, Peter. So, as as I mentioned before, Text Tube Future Studios grew out of my university work in in Japan and and uh, Future University, and basically it comes down to this idea that there's there's very little good quality accurate information about futures issues in audiovisual form. Most of it is kind of what what would be called pop futures. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think pop futures is necessarily a bad thing, but there's got to be something which is, goes beyond pop futures too, just to sort of balance it out. So I, I can't think of really any really good quality futures television shows. And so that's kind of where it came from, is the idea of taking futures concepts, analysing a futures issue and actually crafting that into a story, be it fiction, non-fiction, or a mixture of the both, or, or beyond fiction and non-fiction into what you might call surfiction, fiction as in surrealism, or uber-fiction, or something like that. I just made those words up, by the way, but they're not bad words. might be able to use them. Something, no. yeah. So that's where it came from, is actually I, I found that in terms of this idea of futures literacy, which was the theme of UNESCO Summit just a few, few months back, which also I, I was involved in too, I think that there is no better way to increase or augment a person's futures literacy or literacies than to get them to analyse um, a futures issue with, with um, in a, some kind of a futures methodological framework but then turn it into a futures oriented story with, with pictures and sounds and whatever. I remember that my students in Japan, they would they actually actually had a word for it to describe this phenomena and I called it All Futured Out. And it came from the idea that students love the idea of being in a future university, but when you actually confront them with the real futures issue, you can, you can see their eyes glaze over, they all hunch over in their seats and they think, uh-oh, where is this going to go? I don't like the sound of this. So the, the idea of future was just a cool, sexy word for them, but they didn't really want to engage in it, and they didn't want to engage in it because they didn't know how to engage in it. They didn't know how to engage in it because they didn't have the words. Now, if you talked about mathematics to these, these um, students, yeah, they've got the pluses, the minuses, the integers, um, you know, the cosine. They've got all the language to talk about mathematics in a meaningful way. They all agree on what those words and those concepts are. But when it comes to the future, it's some kind of open, cool, sexy space. But... Don't get me to talk about it because I don't know what it is. We haven't got a language for it. So futures literacy in that sense was was a really strong thing that I tried to push and and give them the words so that they could actually have a common vocabulary, vocabulary, a lexicon to actually engage in the future with common words. They all understood. And from that, they would actually build stories around that. So fast forward to Future studios right now. Um, It's been going for about three or four years now in its current form. And we're just working on a few new projects. And one of my um, flagship projects, as I call it, is based on the book that I mentioned a while back by um, Jacob Bronowski and The Ascented Man. Now, it just suddenly, I just i just saw the DVD in my bookshelf the other day and thought, oh, I better get that out and start to look at that again. And then I realized it's been 48 years since that book was published and I thought, oh, I'll start to read the book and I'll watch the DVD series and think it's really kind of crappy and old and, yeah, we've moved on in the meantime. But as I started to watch it, I actually re- realized the exact opposite, that it was full of wisdom, um, the English was beautifully crafted, and it was an, an incredibly epic, sweeping history of, of humanity going through the arts and the sciences. And I think that Jacob Bronowski's, his style is so unique, unique in the fact that he didn't look like a superstar person on TV. He's not a Brad Pitt. But he's got a bit of a, a bit of a lisp, which probably now the BBC would not would not allow someone like him to actually talk on 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 a TV series. No, I'm I'm not yeah, you know they're they're very particular about you've got to look the right you've got to look the part you know, the right makeup you've got to have the right kind of voice. Hmm. So he was this guy who was complete sort of just didn't really sort of fit, but he had a certain engagement about him. And, and I started watching the series again, and I just I just loved it. I thought this was so so refreshing. So I started watching the series, and then I went back to the book, which, as I said, I've had around for 48 years now. And I got to the very end, episode 13, and Bronowski is always referring to basically the past, but I could tell that he really wants to talk about the future of, of um, humanity. Hmm. And then I thought, I went back to all my documentary ideas, and I've got these ideas, big big ideas about utopias and, you know, utopias and dystopias and so on. And then I realized that what I have done is – unconsciously I've taken the ascent of man and I've carved all these various <laughs> documentary programs or series or, or films or whatever and they're kind of the flip side they reverse what Bronowski did with looking at the evolution of, of, of humanity and I've been looking at the futures of of humanity so I sat down and I wrote the beginnings of a concept a script a treatment for something that I've now called the ongoing ascent of humankind mm. And basically, it's, a, it's going to be a 13-part series, which consciously refers back to Brunovsky and his, his beautiful, breathtaking work, and, and look at the futures of humans, basically.
0: Cool. They're using the original Ascent of Man as the scaffolding?
1: Yeah, consciously. And I will refer, probably in the first line, I will refer to Brunovsky. And I, I think that his work is so interesting. It's so refreshing. It's so wise that it kind of needs to be brought back to life, but in a different form. And I think you talked about that before, that you take an older text and you bring it back to life in a futures-oriented form. That's what I would do. I would actually consciously refer back to his work as the part TV series. Yeah. And this was actually aired on the BBC, I think it was May 5 or May 7 in in 1973. So we're, what, 2021 now. So I was thinking, I don't know whether this is possible. My goal is to actually have this aired on TV on May five in twenty twenty three to celebrate fifty years from the ascent of (laughs) man. That's my idea, anyway, Peter. So, uh, well,
0: that's that's a big, hairy, audacious goal,
1: isn't
2: it? It is. It's ambitious, isn't it? Yeah. Wish me luck. (laughs) I
0: do. I do. I might wrap it there, David. So, on behalf of us at future pod and the future pod community thank you for taking some time out to talk with talk with everyone
1: and thank you for the opportunity this this is a great experience um for me and hopefully for other people and um yeah because we're in a very similar kind of industry putting futures and media together and you're doing one thing i'm doing another thing who knows maybe we can create some new synergies between us and um create a whole new way of looking at the future and engaging in the future and actually create some real futures-oriented social transformation.
0: Yeah, that will be great. Thanks, David. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.